When it comes to the topic of money and possessions, this should probably be no surprise, but Jesus has a lot to say. Just think about the times that he talks about how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, or, or the encounter he has with that young rich ruler who couldn't part with his wealth, or what he says in the Sermon on the Mount about giving your possessions to those in need, or not being anxious about having enough money to buy what is needed, or, or how you can't serve both God and mammon. In the Gospels, we read about conversations he has with his disciples about whether or not a person should pay taxes and whether or not, whether or not a woman does the right thing when she spends money on some expensive perfume to anoint Jesus with. Money also features in many of Jesus' parables. He tells stories about sons spending the money from their inheritance and servants investing the money of their master. At other times, he he talks about people who have large financial debts forgiven and then refuse to forgive the debts of others. And then he tells a story about a rich man who, who won't care for the poor man at his doorstep and finds himself in a place of judgment after death, begging for another chance to have his brothers warned not to follow his own path. Like I said, the subject of money and possessions and wealth, it's something that comes up again and again in the Gospels. But of all the stories that Jesus tells, perhaps the one that addresses it most directly is the story he tells in Luke chapter 12, the story about a rich or a greedy fool. Now, in order to understand the story, we need to pay attention to how Luke introduces it. It comes in the context of some teaching Jesus is doing among what Luke says is a large crowd following him around. And at some point, someone in the crowd comes up to Jesus with a request. Teacher, he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And the fact that Jesus is being asked to intervene in this, this family squabble over money, it's not terribly surprising. There are laws in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy that outline how inheritances were supposed to be divided. And as a respected rabbi, Jesus would have been seen as someone who had the authority to give an opinion on how those laws should be interpreted and applied. So this, this man, probably the younger brother, is trying to get Jesus to weigh in on his side and force his older brother to give him more of the inheritance. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he uses the moment to give a lesson to the crowd. And he says, take care and be on your guard against all greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus, of course, isn't the only one to warn against greed or covetousness. The Ten Commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai end with a prohibition of greed, of coveting what belongs to your neighbor. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And in his letter to the Colossians, he equates greed with idolatry. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't just condemn the love of money or greed. He helps us understand why this must be avoided. And how does he do it? Well, unsurprisingly, he tells a story. And you know how the story goes. Once upon a time, there was a rich farmer 
whose fields produced a bumper crop harvest one year. In fact, the produce was so plentiful that he didn't even have enough storage capacity to house it all. So he starts talking to himself and he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And so he does something that actually seems rather sensible. Instead of taking up more of his land to build new storage barns, which would limit where he could plant, he just decides to tear down his old barns and build new ones in their place, bigger ones to store his crops. Now, at this point of the story, you might be thinking, well, this is just good common sense. I mean, the farmer knows that if he tries to sell all his harvest this year, he knows that he'll flood an oversaturated market and he'll drive the value of wheat down. So what he's doing here, he's just making a good business decision. He's storing some of it away for when the supply begins to dwindle again, when he has a lower harvest. And he's just a sensible farmer who understands basic market dynamics of supply and demand. As one scholar puts it in his commentary on this story, it would appear then that Jesus portrays this wealthy farmer as having a good head for agribusiness. Now, for those of us who are neither farmers nor business owners, who spend time thinking about how much of a product to sell and how much to retain at any given time, and this story might seem a little distant, but if you think about it, Jesus could have told the story by talking about a successful corporate employee who chooses to invest all the excess income she receives into a Roth IRA account or a 529 college savings plan or a robust 401k. After all, if you pay attention to what the farmer says to himself when he, he settles on his strategy, you could see the similarities. Look what he says in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now that statement is significant because it tells us what was going on in the heart of that wealthy farmer. What Jesus says his problem really is. And it's not what you might at first think. You see, when we think of greed today, we often equate it with lavish lifestyles, with the constant desire to buy and consume. You remember that line from Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street? What does he say? Greed is good. Uh, we hear that and we immediately recognize that it's wrong. Greed shouldn't be good. And we associate greed with things like, like a hedonistic lifestyle and large amounts of consumer debt. And you might think that, that that was what the farmer's problem was. His problem is he was focused on acquiring more and more money and possessions and, and, and that he was prioritizing the pleasures that money could provide over everything else. After all, isn't that what he alludes to when he tells himself to eat, drink, and be merry? Well, at least that, that's how I used to think about this story when I read it. But now I've come to understand it a bit differently. Because you see, unlike the story about the prodigal son, Jesus says nothing about this farmer going and spending all the profit he makes from that bumper crop on fancy possessions or worldly pleasures. The prodigal son does that, but 
Nothing is said about how the farmer spends the money he receives. To the contrary, Jesus seems to suggest that this farmer's focus isn't really on the pleasure that comes from the money. It's on the security that comes from having it. That's what the farmer values. That's why he builds those new barns and stores away all of that crop to sell at a later date. It's why he says what he does in verse 19 when he says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's not congratulating himself on being able to afford a new house or go on some fancy vacation or buy a new car. No, what he's telling himself is, Soul, you don't have to be anxious anymore. Now you can finally relax. Now this farmer feels like he doesn't have to worry about whether a drought will dry up his crops and he'll have nothing to sell and he'll have to sell off some of his land. Now, finally, he can sit down and he can feel at peace. And if you understand the man's disposition that way, then you can see why Jesus immediately follows this story up with a lesson on not being anxious and trusting in God's provision. Now, the Gospel of Matthew includes this teaching that Jesus has about anxiety. It includes it within his Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke's Gospel, Luke chooses to place it here, directly after this story Jesus tells about a financially sensible farmer storing up excess grain for a later time. And I think that helps us to understand also to understand God's response to the farmer in verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, some people have read this response as an indication that the man is being condemned by God, that like that rich man Jesus tells a story about just a few chapters later in Luke, that the, this man is dying that night and he's going to face the judgment of God. At least that's one way to interpret what Jesus says here. But I think that may be a misunderstanding. If you notice, Jesus doesn't actually say anything about the verdict of the judgment this man faces. He does suggest that the man will face death that night. That's, that's what he means when he says, your soul is required of you. But the reason that Jesus calls him a fool is not because the farmer was indulging in some kind of immoral, pleasure-focused, consumption-oriented lifestyle. Now, the reason he calls him a fool is because what the man was telling himself was that this great harvest, his, his savings and possessions, that they somehow were going to provide security to his life. They were the answer to the anxieties he felt about the future. When in fact, as Jesus points out, those possessions could do nothing at all for this man in the face of death. God and God alone could preserve him in life or require his soul in death. That farmer, he was comforting himself that now finally he had the means to take care of his own future. But Jesus was pointing out that money can do no such thing. 
And that's why as soon as Jesus finishes telling the story, it's why he goes on to repeat the lesson that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount about how we shouldn't be anxious about our life and our physical or financial needs. It's why he goes on to say, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. The point that Jesus is getting at in this parable isn't ultimately about how much money or how many possessions a person should have. It's obvious that he thinks that money can be a great impediment to discipleship. I mean, Jesus repeats that lesson often enough in the Gospels. But his point here isn't that you should avoid wealth. His point is that those who look to wealth or to investment strategies or to long-term savings, that those who look to these things as a source of security, those who find rest in their souls through such things, those people, Jesus is saying, are fools. Fools because they are forgetting that they're mortal, that their soul may be required of them at any moment, but also fools because in their anxiety, they forget that their welfare has never actually depended on the amount of money they have, but has always depended on the kindness of God, who Jesus says not only provides for us, but whose good pleasure it is to give us the kingdom. You know, it's interesting in the Gospel of Matthew, this teaching that Jesus gives about anxiety and trusting in God and not seeking after money, but after God's kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, this teaching is connected to a statement Jesus makes about serving two masters. You remember what I'm talking about? When he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I used to think when I read that, I, I used to think that what it meant is that you shouldn't love money and the pleasures money provides, that you shouldn't love those things more than you love God. And no doubt that's true. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the reason Jesus calls money a master or some kind of God is because we have a tendency to look to money in the same way and for the same things that we look to God. We look to money not just as a source of pleasure and happiness and good in our lives, as the thing that provides us what we need. We also look to money as a source of security in our lives. What money offers is peace of mind, a way not to feel anxious, to know that we're taken care of. And that's the real problem with greed. And it's what makes greed so foolish. It's also why in, in medieval and early modern art, it's why the vice of greed, or avarice as it's sometimes called, it's why it's often depicted not as a person living a rich, lavish, or hedonistic lifestyle. It's often depicted in art as a relatively poor woman holding a money purse, looking at it or drawing its strings tight. What that art conveys, I think, is something quite similar to the heart of what Jesus is teaching in this story, which is that the problem with greed, the problem with the pursuit of money, is fundamentally a problem of the heart. 
the women in those paintings, just like the man in the story Jesus tells, they're looking to money as a source of security, as a refuge from distress in their lives. In their anxiety, what gives them peace is the knowledge of what they've managed to save and how it will take care of them in a time of need. In the story, the greedy and foolish farmer was wealthy. But we have no reason to think that the man who asked Jesus originally to make his brother split the inheritance, we have no reason to think that that man was wealthy or that the people in the crowd that day were inordinately wealthy. Wealthy people may be more prone to taking comfort in money simply because they can, but you don't have to be rich to be greedy. All you have to do is be enough of a fool to think that money can actually take care of you and can provide for your needs. All you have to do is forget about your heavenly father who Jesus says knows exactly what you need and who takes great pleasure in giving you his kingdom. 